just follow that pillar work. Uh, my name's Paul. I'm one of the pastors here at King's. And uh, it's my privilege to lead the King's. my privilege to be speaking um, this morning. And I think, I think what you pick up from that drama, what you uh, pick up when you listen to Nick's testimony, is the difference that Christianity makes to normal lives. You, you, you notice just normal people with normal challenges, and we've all got different backgrounds. You might not be the same as Nick. You might not have the same challenges or, or, or difficulties. You might struggle with different things that were portrayed in this drama. But Jesus has something to say that makes a massive difference to every person that was ever born on the face of this earth. And this morning, I just want to spend a little bit of time. We're going to go over by about 10 minutes, just to, to warn you. Kids work know that, because we started 10 minutes late, so we've got that sort of opportunity. I'm just going to share a little bit about the centrality of the Easter message. And I don't know, obviously, where you're from or what your background is. I don't know what's brought you here today. I don't know what you've thought so far of the meeting. I've got a runny nose, sorry. Got all emotional. I wonder if you've ever thought about what difference the resurrection makes. Whether you call yourself a Christian or an atheist here today, I wonder if you've ever given enough time just to wonder about the resurrection. Did it even happen? I mean, is there anything to it at all? Does it, does it matter to yourself? And if so, why does it matter? What, what was accomplished at the resurrection? Does it make any difference 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years on, for you or for me? And so this morning, we're going to look at the whole subject of does the resurrection matter? And I'm going to look at it under three headings. First importance, evidence, and then we're going to finish with my personal favourite part of what I'm going to share about, which is the five, five gifts of the resurrection. And we're going to base the talk in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. Um, it was written by a guy called Paul, who was a follower of Jesus. He started loads and loads of churches, um, and he also wrote an awful lot of the Bible. And before I dive in and just look at this, I just want to pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your grace and your goodness to us. I thank you for the immense privilege of being able to come together as a community of people and worship and enjoy you. And I just ask, Lord, that this morning, would you please help me to communicate clearly? I pray would you fill me with your Holy Spirit. But I pray as well for each person here today that they would have a greater revelation of you and your significance after today. Lord, whether it's from the songs we've sung, whether it's the testimony we've heard, whether it's the dance and the performance, whether it's what I say, I ask you, Lord God, that we will marvel again at the wonder of who you are and everything you've done for us. So firstly, first importance. And I'm just going to take the passage in little sections. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul is finishing off a letter that he wrote to the church um, in Corinth, and he wants to remind the church of the most important thing. 
I mean, you may be hazy on a whole number of things when it comes to Christianity, but Paul, who wrote this, is really keen that they're not hazy or they're not confused about this, but but they, they understand it. I want to remind you of the gospel. Paul preached it. They received it. They stood upon it. They were saved by it, and they would hold fast to it. It's interesting that the church at Corinth weren't, weren't just to have an understanding of it. They weren't just about to remember a few key bits of it. They would have received it. It's like if I was to give Richard here, who's on the front row, a gift. Him knowing that I've got a gift for him isn't good enough. He's got to receive it. He's got to be willing to take it as I reach it out and as I give it to him. He's got to be willing to take it in. And the church at Corinth had received it. They'd stood upon it. That meant they put it into practice in their lives. They were saved by it. And they held fast to it. Christianity isn't just something you can add to a busy life. It's not just something you can add on to everything else. If I told you that, I'd be lying. The Bible's very clear about the Christian faith, that it is revolutionary for every single person who accepts the message. And as you grow to understand more and more about who Jesus is and what he did, you'll actually find out that you can't live the same way that you've been living before, because following Jesus will cost you everything. It's a message you need to hear, It's a message you need to receive. It's a message you need to base your life upon. It will change everything. I've just got to be honest with you from the start. To follow Jesus Christ will cost you everything. There aren't any half-hearted measures. You you can't just say, no, I accept some of these Christian principles and I'm going to put it onto my life. You can't say, well, I'll come to church every now and again. I'm sure that's good enough. Well, maybe I was born in a Christian family or maybe I do Christmas at church. Um, I do, do, sorry, do Easter. I do church at Christmas and at Easter. Now, you, you receive Jesus both as one who saves you from your sin, but one who is Lord of your life. It's a decision that will cost you everything. For I deliver to you, it goes on to say in verses 3 and 4, for I deliver to you as first importance what I also received. You see, this guy, Paul, who wrote this, it wasn't just something where he was pointing and he was saying about the Christian message and Jesus, oh, if you go over there, you'll meet Jesus. If, if you head in that direction, it will do you good. Paul had received it himself and it had made a massive transformation in his own life. And if you read about Paul and everything he, he, he did, you'll realise the amazing cost, actually, it had on his life. But he says again, it's of first importance. He says, I delivered to you as first importance that Christ died, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. And that is why we celebrate Easter. You know, Jesus was an incredible man. Santino's already said it. He healed loads of people. He even raised the dead. He was one of the most, probably the most amazing teacher that has ever existed. His generosity, his kindness are second to none. But it wasn't those things that the Apostle Paul wanted to remind them of that they had to put of first importance. It was the fact that he died and the fact that he was buried, which, which aren't notable things in their own right, are they? Because... 
They're sad, but they're not notable. But what is notable is the fact that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. And that is the essence of the Christian hope. This is what is of first importance. If you want to be a Christian, you need to understand that Jesus Christ, he died a cruel death for you. That he was buried, but on the third day, he rose again. Now you might say, oh come on, you know, people do not rise from the dead. Now, and anyway, this is 2,000 years ago. What relevance, what evidence do you have for this? Well, it's interesting because I think people at church at Corinth were also struggling. And that's why he's included. He's included two different pieces of evidence to back up what he's saying about Jesus dying, being re- buried, and then rising again from the dead. The first one is this. Do you notice in, in, in line, if you put those verses back up, that he died in accordance with the scripture. That he was buried, and then on the third day, he rose in accordance with the scripture. What Paul is saying here is not the scripture is the New Testament that was written after Jesus' death, but he's, this is done in accordance with scriptures that were written before his death. You see, hundreds of years before Jesus ever lived, it was predicted that a Messiah would come. One who would live, one who would take the sins of mankind, he would die and he would rise again three days later. This was predicted with an amazing amount of accuracy and detail. And if you read the Gospel according to Matthew, you'll find time and time and time again, Matthew says it happened in accordance with what was written. Why? Because, because it gives faith to the fact God had already spoken and said these things would happen. What Jesus did just backed up what had been written before. This wasn't stuff that was written up after just to tie it up. It's it's historical. It was written way before Jesus came. It was done in accordance with what had been written. It was done in accordance with what God had already pre-planned would occur. But the second thing we also notice, and it's in verses 5 to 8, that this resurrected, resurrected Jesus, he appeared to Cephas, that is to Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to many. You see, what Jesus did wasn't just in accordance with stuff written of hundreds of years before, but people actually witnessed the resurrected physical Jesus walking around. They, they saw him eating. They saw him talking. They even saw him cooking. They, this, this Jesus who had died, who had been put in a tomb, rose back to life again. There were witnesses of it. Now, there was Peter, who was a close follower of Jesus. There were the 12 apostles who were also close followers of Jesus. There was James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. All of them, you could imagine, couldn't you? Well, you know, they can all get together and say, you know, he did die, but we'll we pretend he rose from the dead. You can sort of imagine that they could get together. But it says right in the middle of there that he appeared to 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some of them have fallen asleep, some of them have died. And basically what he was saying is, look, you guys at Corinth, if you want, if you jump on an aeroplane and fly back to Jerusalem, or get the camel train, or however they would have travelled, 
you would be able to find people that witness Jesus who had come back from the dead. They're walking around, they're talking, they're living life normal, just like me, just like you. You could have spoken to them. Now, we can't now. It's 2,000 years later. But when this was written, when he's giving an orderly account of what happened, these people existed. And then Paul himself, the guy who wrote this letter, he had no desire to defend the idea of a resurrected saviour. His job was to hunt down Christians, to confiscate their property, to put them in prison, and in some cases to kill them. That is what this guy who wrote the letter to Corinth did. That's, that's what he was supposed to be doing for a job. But when he saw the quality of the early church and their generosity, their love for one another, their incredible courage in spite of suffering, when he met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, it transformed his world. He was a skeptic. He was more skeptical about Jesus than any of you here. Definite. He poured his life into disproving Christianity. Yet he encountered Christ and was so convinced of the facts that he gave his life to following Jesus, although it cost everything. Christianity is not some easy crutch you can lean on to help you at a difficult time. It's something that will cost everything if you want to follow Jesus. Paul couldn't deny the facts. And he deliberately covers the detail here because he doesn't want them to miss it. And I'm covering the detail here because I don't want you to miss it either. Paul then gives a bit of personal story from verses 9 to 11. We're not going to cover that because of time. But we then look at verses 12 to 20. And in here we find five incredible gifts of the resurrection. And I, I just want to spend a bit of time lingering on them because I'll tell you one thing, they make me happy when I, when I read them, when I understand what God's done. And I think they're going to do the same for you. And if you're not someone that really thinks much about Christianity at all, I, I just want to leave them out there to provoke you to think, well, what about me? If I don't believe in Jesus and I don't believe in this message, what are my answers to these gifts that I won't get if I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ? How will I fill this gap in my life? Now, this passage is a little confusing, but we're going to read it and then I'll work my way through very quickly these five areas. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, they struggle with the resurrection, just like some of us do. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those of you who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ you have hope in this life only, we are, to be, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now these five points, I'm going to put them positively, whereas the Apostle Paul in this passage puts them negatively. So I'm going to spin them around and put them positively, and I'm not going to take them in the order that he's taken them in, because 
I think I've got a better order to put them in than he had. Right. You can all correct me about that afterwards, okay? First thing is this. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we know our sins are forgiven. You see, the negative statement in verse 17 is this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Because Christ has been raised to life, it shows that not only did Christ defeat death itself, but also sin, the cause of death. The Bible says that every human being has been born in sin. We invest into it and at the end we reap a harvest of death. Jesus came to reverse the effect of sin. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for my rebellion against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he came to pay the penalty for your rebellion against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's why he came. The proof that Jesus has defeated sin is the fact that he rose from the dead. Death could not hold him. In every human heart, there is a need for forgiveness. You may not be aware of it, but it's deep inside every heart. To know you've been forgiven and cleansed to know that we have been accepted by God. Because Christ was raised from the dead, we have confidence that our sins are forgiven. It is wonderful. Let me ask you, do you know your sins have been forgiven? Do you know they have been completely washed away? never to be brought up against you, ever again. Because Christ was raised from the dead, we know our sins are forgiven. Secondly, we know that our faith is well founded. In the negative in verse 14, Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If my faith in God is in vain, it means it produces no result, it means it's useless. If my faith is in vain, it means it's useless. It has no use. It's a waste of time. But Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, it is well founded. To put it in a different way, it means that the God that I worship is absolutely trustworthy. If you want to put it personally, it means I can trust him because he was raised from the dead. He is someone who, if you put your trust in him, he will never let you down. Again, in some ways, we're all looking for someone who is absolutely trustworthy, aren't we? Someone who will never let you down through thick or thin. Whatever you do, whatever mistakes you make, we are made to live with a deep-rooted trust in God. It's part of how we're put together. The death of Jesus defeats the power of sin in our lives. His resurrection demonstrates God's great power at work in us. Both things point 
to God's commitment to you. He is committed to you. Your faith is well founded. He can be trusted. And we know that because he's not dead in a grave, but he is raised from the dead. Thirdly, the apostles preach what is true. Those early followers of Jesus who wrote so much of the Bible, we can trust what they say in verse 15 in the negative. So we are even found to be misrepresenting God. If Christ was not raised from the dead, you cannot take the resurrection out of Christianity and still think you've got anything worth doing. You have nothing. You have nothing. Because the whole basis of what the apostles taught was on the fact that he was raised from the dead. This is the central claim made by Jesus' first followers. They weren't, ouch. <laughs> they weren't just saying in some poetic way, um, you know, oh, oh, God's cause still continues although he died. Or they weren't just saying, you know, I'm still regarding Jesus as my Lord and, and I'm still following his teaching. That's not what they were saying. They were saying, no, he was raised from the dead. Sorry, I know I'm a bit like a stuck record, but Easter only comes around once a year, so... In a world that says it's okay for you, it's fine, but don't push it on me. In a world that says there's no absolute truth, there isn't anything that is true for all people at all time, whatever nation. That, that's in a sense, that's the world we live in. If it's true for you, that's fine, but, but it's not absolute. It's just true for you. For me, I have a completely different set of truth. The Bible cuts right to the heart of that. Jesus' teaching cuts right to the heart of the fact. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead cuts straight to the heart of that and actually says there is an absolute truth. There is an absolute person to believe in. There is an absolute way to the Father. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to God except through Jesus Christ. You may say that, that, Paul, you're arrogant. I don't mean to be arrogant. I just mean to try and communicate what the Bible says. If you want a Christianity that reflects what the Bible says, it's very, very clear. And the fact that Christ rose from the dead proves that Jesus' claims are true. You might say, you might say, well, why? Why is it true? It doesn't feel true and I don't like it, therefore I'm not accepting it. To be quite honest, it doesn't really make any difference because the Bible says he is king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And the fact he rose from the dead proves that that is the case. Therefore it trumps our feelings or our desires or our preferences. Fourthly, we're to be envied. Verse 19, it says in the negative, God, Christians to be envied? That seems an odd thing to say. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Christians are often viewed with pity, aren't they? Okay, maybe it's just me. <laughs> A sad, I feel sorry for you type of thing. And, and actually, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, you just carry on pitying. But the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead gives us a hope to be envied. 
What is the point in doing what Jesus says? What is the point in living for him? What is the point in paying the cost that I described earlier if it's all useless and a waste of time? And if Christ wasn't raised, then it is. What's the point of living for someone when in the end it's just a great delusion? But that is not the case. Our preaching is not in vain. It is powerful, meaningful, valuable, eternal and significant. Why? Because the point of our preaching is life. No one wants to get to the end of their lives and feel they've wasted it. In every one of us there is a longing that our lives are well spent and have significance beyond the days that we have lived. We want to count for something. We want to have significance. We want to be useful. And John Piper, who's a a Bible teacher and a writer, tells a story of how an old man came to know Jesus at one of the meetings he was speaking at. And he came, and he's right at the end of his life, and he came, and he came to understand about Jesus. And his reaction wasn't necessarily what John was expecting him to be, because he suddenly said, I've wasted it all. He realised that what he had been living for before wasn't the real thing. And only in his last few years has he understood the truth, the eternal truth, the absolute truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And fifthly, those who have fallen asleep are alive. In verse 18 it says negatively, and if Christ has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Jesus has not been raised, then then those who have died have perished. They they have been destroyed. That's the case. There, There is no hope. It means death, our last great enemy, has won. But Christ's resurrection has defeated death itself. He has taken away the power of death. He has broken the power of sin. Everyone has a desire to live forever in joy and peace. No one wants an empty end after a full life. To end with nothingness would be bad enough. To end with an eternity without God would be even worse. But Paul says that because Christ was raised from the dead, those who have died in faith have not perished. They have not been destroyed. John Piper says, Jesus Christ is the author of life and the victor over death. This is the greatest news in all the world. And it centres back on the Easter message. It is wonderful. The the resurrection provides the gift of eternal life. It's awesome. Just as I close now, could I invite the band back up please? The five things, the five gifts of the resurrection that I have been sharing give us hope, they give us strength as Christians, but May I ask you, if you're not someone who would say you follow Christ,
What, what do you do with your sin? What will happen at the end of your life? Where, where do you get your truth from that you base so much of your hope upon? Is your faith in whatever it is futile or can it be trusted? Tom Wright says this. The message of Easter then is neither that God once did a spectacular miracle but then decided not to do many others nor that there is a blissful life after death to look forward to. The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you're invited to belong to it. The message of Easter is that you can be forgiven for all you've done, thought, or said. Those things you've done wrong. You can have a faith that is worthwhile and well-founded with a deep-rooted trust in the God who made you. You can know the truth and Jesus' promises that the truth will set you free. You can live a life in Christ that has significance beyond the grave. You can live for all eternity with a confidence of a perfect joy. I mean, it's in some ways a ridiculous claim, but it's a claim in the Bible. It's a claim that is true for those who have put their hope in him. All of this. And even more is why the resurrection matters in your life today. Now Joe's going to sing a song and we're going to listen to the words. And I just want to invite you while she sings. I want to invite you to think, what does the resurrection mean to you? It's an opportunity in busy life just to pause and think, am I going the right direction? Am I believing the right stuff? Am I putting it into practice? If you want to find out more about Christianity, at the end of the meeting, I'm just going to be stood just down there. And you come and talk to me. Or alternatively, you can just put um, a comment on the feedback forms and just say you'd like someone to give you a ring or send you an email. If you put your details on there, someone will contact you in the week. Or alternatively... Just head to the welcome area. We put all our friendliest church people over there. And they'd be very happy to answer any questions you've got. But it's too important for you just to walk out without thinking any more about this central message. Let's listen to the band and to Joe as they sing. <laughs>